On this week's Movie Hilo, we're talking man-made viruses, Cassandra complexes, and giving the planet back to the dogs and cats. Are you also divergent, friend? This is Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. So here we are on uh, another lockdown. A Parisian dessert. Lockdown edition of Movie Hilo, a podcast discussing the best and worst that cinema has to offer. This is Dom. And this is Dee. Yeah, we are still uh, weathering the storm that is COVID-19. We've been lucky, obviously, but trying to, as very much as possible, stay home, with the exception of popping out at the grocery store, we need to get things, but we really have been pretty good about staying inside. Yeah. So we thought, so obviously we're doing a high episode this week, and we thought with um, with everything that's going on, we would, we would try and look at some kind of virus slash pandemic style movie. Uh, the first one I think that immediately came to mind, at least for me, was was this one, was this film here, 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam, released on January 5th, 1996. Uh, as stated, it's a high episode. Uh, says Who, IMDb has rated it an 8.0. It's got a 90% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was nominated for two Oscars. Brad Pitt as Best Supporting Actor and then Best Costume Design. I think Brad Pitt actually even won the Golden Globe for this. Did he win for Legends of the Fall already or something? <laughs> no. Brad, well, Brad Pitt's first Oscar win was was this year. was um, yeah. once, once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, I'm sure he was at least nominated. Oh, he's been nominated. He's been nominated a couple of times, I think. But his first win was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Do you want to do the synopsis? Do I, did, I did the overthrow of that too. Yeah, do the synopsis. In the year 2035, James Cole, a prisoner and member of the surviving 1% of humanity. <laughs> I just can't believe I realized that. <laughs> In the year 2035, James Cole, a prisoner and member of the surviving 1% of humanity, is volunteered to help gather information on a deadly virus which wiped out over 5 billion people in 1996. Cole must time travel back to the origin of the virus to obtain a sample before it mutates, as well as to learn about the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, a radical activist group who are thought to have connections to the genesis of the epidemic. After initially being sent back to the wrong year, Cole is apprehended and comes under psychiatric scrutiny from Dr. Catherine Rayleigh. While institutionalized, Cole also encounters Jeffrey Goines, a deranged lunatic and the inevitable leader of the Twelve Monkeys. Will Cole discover the true source of this deadly virus, accidentally engender its cause himself, or is all of this simply the delusions of a hopelessly, mentally divergent man? I I remember seeing this movie really really young. I was probably what well, came out in ninety six, so I would have been I would have been in the sixth grade. I probably would have been like eleven, eleven or twelve years old. So I remember seeing it when it first came out, and I, I just remember loving it. I remember I, I specifically I have I have very vivid memories of like renting this from Blockbuster and sitting down and watching this on VHS and. You know, it just what, being... But what drew you to it or what did you like about it? Well, I remember the trailer. I remember seeing the trailer in theaters and it just looked amazing. I I always kind of liked sci-fi stuff and especially like futuristic or, or specifically time travel stuff was always really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, Bruce Willis and, and Brad Pitt. I mean, it's just like a... It was just kind of like these were the, the mainstays of that time, of that era in the, in the 90s. Bruce Willis was a huge... Mm-hmm. action guy from the diehard movies I'd seen all those um but the thing that like really sticks out I think a thing that really stick really stuck out to me the first time I saw it and the thing that sticks out to me even now like rewatching it so many years later is this is very much a this is very very much a Terry Gilliam movie I mean the, this is Terry Gilliam is one of those directors where there's no question as to whether or not you're watching a Terry Gilliam film this guy likes weird shit he's he's very visual director he's a guy who's not really interested in anything that's naturalistic he's not into subtlety or nuance he's a very surreal filmmaker everything is kind of on this strange and heightened level Mm -hmm. you know a lot of stuff with wide angle lens shots and and dutch angles or krangles as we mentioned in the in the um battlefield earth episode um that's just that's just the stuff that this guy really likes, and I think that it's, well, he it, obviously is a fan of the stretch because that was he does in quite a few. Movie. Yeah, he uses quite he does the stretch, which is the or they call it the um, the dolly zoom, the the um, Hitchcock effect, where the camera is 
zooming out as it's dollying in or vice versa. It's dollying out as it's zooming in to, to kind of almost make the background and foreground feel like they're being stretched. Um, he does it quite a few times in this movie. But this guy in particular is um, he, a lot of it. I mean, the, the movies that he's directed are things like Brazil, um, Fisher King, Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas. He's a guy who likes to have he stories. He did Monty Python movies. He did, he did. Yeah, he did Holy Grail. I think he did Life of Brian. Um, or Meaning of Life. I'd have to check which ones. But he was a part of, you know, he, he did a lot of the directing. He was actually, he was a, an animator too for a long time. Um, Gilliam's just a guy who really likes to do a lot of visual stuff with his storytelling. And I think that he picks movies that are told from the perspective of somebody who's a psycho or somebody who has mental illness, like for The Fisher King, or somebody who's on drugs, like for Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas. Because built into the story, if you're telling it through that perspective, built into the story are all these ways that you can visually manipulate and do crazy things with your camera angles and with everything because of of the characters that the story's being told through. Mm -hmm. As a visual director, as a guy who's kind of into weird shit and as a guy who's into really crazy visuals and being able to make those visuals make sense within the context of the story. Yeah, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, I mean that's, I mean, other other than this, that that you could argue too is one of the most Terry Gilliamist, you know, movies he's ever made because it's just pure adrenaline and pure lunacy um, and pure visual. It's just, it's everything is like on the screen. There's nothing that he's hiding. He's not trying to do naturalism. He's not trying to do subtlety and depth he's trying to almost make things big in character mm. caricatures to to for the sake of telling the story so this is a movie where the story itself lends itself very well to i think the style of the filmmaker mm-hmm. um i don't know if if this would be a movie that's better served or better told by somebody who's trying to do something more subdued or more grounded like if chris nolan Absolutely made this movie not. i don't know if it would be as good as what Terry Gilliam is doing with it as as broad and kind of wild as he's making it. So, well, I think that a movie like this movie or other ones that you've mentioned that Terry Gilliam has done, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, as another example, I would think that in the hands of another director, it would definitely lose something because you can tell that Terry Gilliam must be the kind of director that is all about using cinematography as a means to convey the psychological and emotional state of the characters in the movie and usually a lot of times it might be because of the influence of psychosis or drugs or whatever it is that's altering the mental state but nonetheless people that have been drunk or been high or whatever can tell you that this is kind of a swirly, spinny, loopy, uh, hallucinogenic, all these things. So it's like using the visual medium to convey what it feels like to be the main characters in these stories. It, it's only aided by having him. And I think he seeks out those types of stories. I think the movies that he likes to make are told through, You know, almost the way that, like, if you think of a Tim Burton movie, like, the protagonist is always a little disturbed an outcast. Or, all, right. you know, I think he kind of looks for characters with a skewed view of the world so that he can tell the stories through that skewed view. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's really drawn to as a filmmaker. So this is kind of, like, the apex of that. Like, the, the top of the mountain for him getting this character who, you know, the whole movie is being is being pulled back through different... through, through time and space. And at certain points of the movie has to question his own sanity. And if the more and more that you can play with that idea, I think it gives him more and more opportunities to do these really, really bizarre visual things that he mm. does in the movie, yeah. which make it really fun to watch. Yeah. Um, just real quick, just to round out on Terry Gilliam, I would, I would mention to anybody who is never, uh, if you're not familiar with Terry Gilliam, obviously you should seek out, there's tons of movies that he's made. Pretty much anything he's made is worth watching. But something that's really interesting about him as a filmmaker or kind of tragic in a way, is that he may be one of the most unluckiest filmmakers of all time. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend if you have any interest whatsoever um, in filmmaking or the, you know what goes into making a movie, the behind-the-scenes elements of filmmaking, check out a documentary called Lost in La Mancha. It is one of the most f- funniest and... Like, Don Quixote? Like, it's so sad. Yeah, it's him trying to make his Don Quixote movie. He was, he was trying to make a movie... Um, the man who killed Don Quixote since like I think like the late 80s and he finally got the budget to do it 
And basically what you watch in this documentary is this entire production fall apart. Like you see a legitimate movie that's tr- that they're trying to make it. And he's got Johnny Depp um, cast as one of the main stars. Yeah. They, they go I out. I vaguely remember seeing Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it's like storms roll in and shut down their whole production. Right. His lead it's actor. It's like somebody up there or somebody down the, there has everything, it up for you. <laughs> everything was cursed. against him. The, he, yeah. the, the production was cursed. I mean, it really, and it's. It's funny to watch and it's it's kind of illuminating to watch and to see I kind of want to watch it again because I do remember watching it but now it's like I I do remember that it was like just when you thought it couldn't get any worse everything that can go wrong Just when you thought it could oh. get any worse for them it's like and then this happens oh, it's like come on It makes on. you sick it makes you sick to watch it but it's it's fascinating it's a fascinating fascinating documentary and of course people are I'm sure very aware of uh, he also made the film The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnarsis which was Heath the Ledger's last movie, last movie. Yeah. He died, I think, halfway through the making of that film. And then film. they had a bunch of other actors standing yeah. for him, like um, what you, yeah. Jude Law. I'll be, and yeah, I'll be perfectly honest, because I think, I don't know if you and I tried to watch it. I remember trying to watch it once, and I couldn't get through it, because I was just like, this is this is not for me. Um, but I remember that there was something within the concept of the movie where it made sense that the character could change physical form. Mm-hmm. So they got, I think it was... They got like Jude five Law. or six different actors. No, like, I think, I think they was, were like a handful of different actors. It was Colin Farrell and Jude Law for sure. And maybe there were yeah, other. Yeah, and like maybe two or three other ones. Yeah. But, you know, but just this guy is like, it, it's just, it's it's kind of bizarre the, the shit luck that this dude has when he's making films. So, um, but I would definitely rank Terry Gilliam as a director. His directorial style is definitely one of the highs of the movie. I think that he Absolutely. gives it a visual flair and makes it. Um, you know, some it, it, he elevates the the uh, material to a certain level by the energy and and the way that he's directing it and the way and that he's shooting it. And it's also just like you know, for you saying to propose the idea in the hands of a different director, like a Christopher Nolan, would it have been better per se, or this that the other thing? It's like it's that's the beauty of artistry in everyone's different lens or scope mm. of the world around them and and the way that they filter the world and the way they perceive it and that the way. They manifest what they take in through whatever it is that they do, whether they paint, they draw, they sculpt, they sing, they compose, they dance, they direct, that, you know, whatever their form of expression is, it's different depending on the person yeah. and how they perceive. That's the beauty of it. So it's like, yeah, of course it'd be different in the hands of somebody else, but it would be a completely different feeling, looking, sounding movie. Yeah, I, I and someone like Terry Gilliam is clearly the right man for somebody for this type for of material. the the mind of somebody who's disturbed or off balance or um, an outcast in some way or like 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 let's put it this way: Chris Nolan could have directed this movie. It just would have been completely different. David Fincher could right. have directed this movie. It would movie. have been a completely different movie, But though. the style of it, like Chris Nolan's a guy who I think tries to ground everything in a certain amount of reality. He tries to take fantasy and ground it in reality so that you almost accept the fantasy as reality. Mm. Um, David Fincher is a guy who's very interested in the facts, the information, how information is, is is transferred from different characters in the movie and then what the audience knows versus what the characters know. Um, those guys could have made, could have taken the script for 12 Monkeys and made a great movie. But when I think of this movie, the first thing that immediately stands out to me about this movie is the visual style, is how off the fucking walls this movie is when you look at it and you see the performances and you see the way that it's shot and the crazy Dutch and, and the and, music that and the, even that dun, music dun, 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 that accordion it's that crazy yeah. like there was there was such a specific type of um, um, aesthetic aesthetic to it and, and a certain approach that they went with that I think again you this movie could be interpreted by other directors and could have been great but I think Gilliam really gave it the style that makes it uh, memorable for what it is so absolutely um. So other highs, I I've, I mean, I got a whole bunch. I I think that just um, the overall story as we're as we're talking about it now, the overall story. It's a great script written by David and Janet Peoples. This is a virus slash post apocalypse movie, but it's also that that kind of genre blended with the time travel movie, and it's kind of cool that they were able to take both of those things and fuse them together in a way where it's not just the virus or the post-apocalypse or it's not just time travel. It's both of those things put together in a really interesting way, which I think is cool. Um, obviously, this is uh, this is adapted from a, a French film from 1962 called Le Jeté, which was a like it was like a short film. I it was think like, it's Le Jeté. Le Jeté. I always call it Le Jeté. 
but you're French, so you would you would know better than me. Le jeté, le jeté, mon chéri. Um, Not to be confused with Jeanne de. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's an old lady perfume. Oh, okay. I could smell it from here. The <laughs> I'm um, not wearing Jeanne de. No, I know. But I, old lady perfume. I think anybody who wears old lady perfume only has five functioning senses. It's fucking <laughs> disgusting. Um, but Le Jeté was a short film from 1962 that was, it was all still images. It was just still black and white photography. I remember seeing it in film school and it was something that they, they showed you to be like, look at this style of French filmmaking and this, you know, and it's a, it's a great movie. And the things that they took from it were, you know, it's a, uh, it's like a soldier who they're experimenting with time travel and he's somebody who witnesses his own death because of the space time continuum. So they took those basic ideas and built off of it in a, in a really, really cool way with the how fucking, you know, complex and cool the plot of this movie is. Yeah. I mean, I never saw that movie, so I can't even compare it. But, I mean, it looked like it was a compilation of images rather than... Yeah. It was still, it was action. all, it was all uh, still photography that was like edited together as a 20 minute short mm-hmm. film and it's all narrated. So it's just like still images with a narrator kind of mm-hmm. explaining what you're seeing in the story. Um... But this movie, what's really cool, I think, about the way that it presents the story is the idea that it's playing with reality. It's, you know, at a certain point in the movie, you're wondering, is is Cole crazy? Is, you know, is he is he actually the reason that the 12 monkeys get started? Um, you know, the whole argument they make about insanity is majority rules, you know, which is similar to I've, I've seen a lot of movies that kind of get into that. But it's an it's a interesting idea of, you know, whoever... Um, Whatever the majority is just, agrees it, on. Right, well, no, insanity is just if you believe the opposite of what the majority believes. So, like, right. the, the majority of us could be crazy, and you could be the minority who's sane, but because you're the minority, you're the one who's insane. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, I like, I wrote down the dream slash memory framing device. Um, you know, the way that th- this, and I feel like this is... <sighs> This is harder to do now because it's been done so much. But when this movie, the way this movie did it was really cool where you've got this event that the main character is seeing in flashback. So it's this little boy in an airport and he's seeing um, a woman chasing after a man who's being shot. And so this little boy is essentially watching the murder of someone in an airport. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly flashing back to Mm -hmm. it throughout the film and again, this is not something Usually that's... Usually within the context of a dream sequence for the Bruce Willis character. Right, and you get that it's Bruce Willis having this dream, mm-hmm. um, and you know that it's gonna. they're setting up for what eventually becomes the big plot twist or the big payoff at the end of the movie, which is that the man that's getting shot is him. He He's seeing his mm-hmm. own death because he's time-traveled back to that point. Um, but it's the way it's done here is really kind of cool... I want to put it this way, like especially for its time, because now I think it's very easy to flashbacks can be really cheesy and really shitty and really kind of lazy screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we we've done the thing now where it's like we start at the well, end. Usually of the movie they're like a source of spoon feeding too. Like in case you forgot. Yeah, yeah. But the way that this, the way it's done in this movie is really interesting because you know it sets it up so that you know that this is going to be something that has to pay off in the end, and they. It, it kind of changes from from as the movie goes on and you kind of re-see the scene, the scene changes a few times. Like at one point, the guy that's the character that's played by David Morse, who is revealed later in the movie, is the David Morse character. At one point when he's re-seeing it, he's seeing it as Brad Pitt. Like Brad Pitt looks at him and is like, get out of my way. And, is, and it's because of where he is at that point in the story where now he's met Jeffrey Goins. Is David Morse like the ponytail doctor there? Yes, the guy with the like the banana yeah. raincoat on yeah, that he's okay. that he's yeah. wearing at the end with the with the red ponytail. Yeah. But when you you see that that scene replay, like the first time you see it you're not entirely you don't entirely see that it's uh Madeline Stowe as the woman. And then later on you see that it's her and then right, later because on because she's blonde and you were Right. And it. you don't see David Morse's face, but after he meets the Brad Pitt character Jeffrey Goins um, at one point when you see the replay again, now he's seeing it as Jeffrey Goins as that character in the in the yellow jacket. So they're constantly changing it on you to kind of keep you off balance. Almost like you you know that this is going to this is going to pay off at some point in the movie, but even if you're trying to get ahead of the movie, it's almost the movie's telling you that we can change the scene as we go. The the, the, he, the character 
is going to remember it different as he has different interactions throughout the movie, mm. which makes that kind of interesting that it's ever changing, even just so slightly. Right. You know what I mean? Are you watching closely? Are you watching closely? Exactly. <laughs> and then I, you know, this is uh, a, another another big thing in the movie. I think is Brad Pitt's performance is is like a huge high. Right. In this well, movie. he's awesome. Yeah, the, he's one of the highs I wrote down for sure. And there's a there was a specific scene that I was like, oh man. Brad Pitt is hilarious. Oh yeah, yeah. When when he's inside the insane asylum, and he's first getting to know Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis finds a spider. That whole scene, mm-hmm. you know, it's like everyone's sleeping, and he's just like crawling over the beds. He's like crawling on top of the other fucking people uh, inmates or patients or whatever, and and like you hear the guy moaning, oh, and it's like kind of like it's just it's just every day to him. You know what I mean? Jumping on top of other patients. Yeah, just climbing you know I mean? over people as they're sleeping. You know, oh, you're basically shit. furniture. Who fucking you know? <laughs> yeah. The institution, I wrote down the institution scenes in Act 1. Right. I think that's like some of the funnest stuff in the movie. And that's yeah. really where where he's at his wackiest. when, yeah. when guilt, Because, you know. Well, I was the, saying he actually almost reminds me of Tyler Durden a little bit. He does. He's, and he's, that's the other thing I was going to say. It's like this movie. It's like I look at Bruce Willis and for some reason I can't help but think of Die Hard and the Christmas music and that opening scene and where he's in the mall and it's all desolate and you hear Silent Night playing and it's Christmas time and yeah. you couldn't help but think about Die Hard and then later on in the movie all the more when they're talking about you know he's moving through the air ducts and or you they know, assume that it's, he it, is. It, right even if he, they assume it it's just like it's wow it's like Die Hard and then this that was after Die Hard this movie but then this movie is also before Fight Club, so it's like. But I don't think I've, I, he's he's kind of like he's like Tyler Durden in the way that he's philosophizing. That there's a lot of scenes, but a little Brad, more but, crazy. But he's definitely like the ADHD version mm-hmm. of Tyler Durden. Like he's you know he's got the crazy eye and he's he just yeah. rambles and goes yeah. off on yeah. on tangents. Yeah. Um, it's funny because these scenes I think are, are they're the funnest first of all because it's it's when Brad Pitt is at his most unrestrained like they're just letting Brad Pitt go fucking nuts in these scenes Mm -hmm. and like do everything out of control Um, and it's also I think some of the wackiest stuff because whenever they're doing the future the futuristic stuff they're shooting it in this very kind of exaggerated way but because Cole um, the Bruce Willis character James Cole is is sedated or because he's on all these drugs in these scenes is when they're really doing all their crangles and mm-hmm. these wide angle lenses and everything is just super, super wacky. There's the one, there's the dude at one point who's saying, who's telling him like, I, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not really from outer space. And he has that whole thing where he's, Oh, this is so-and-so he's not really from outer space. And he's telling him like, he's divergent. I have this, I, I, I am part of an um, intellectual race that, that resides on this planet. And this is a completely real and perfectly satisfying reality for that me. Made but for itself, yeah, but, but every time I go there, you know, it's me escaping realities that I don't want to deal with. Which here. is fundamentally why a lot of people do devise these right, sort of psychological right. problems. But the, but I'm saying the way they shoot the scene where this guy is having this people this find lots of ways to escape their realities. Right. Whether but, it's drugs, whether that, it's making up your own reality. Right, right. Right. But I'm saying the 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 way that the scene is shot and it's like the the character is so lucid. The character like is explaining to him, I know that I'm sick, and as soon as I stop going to this place. I will be well. And then he like leans his head on Bruce Willis's shoulder. He's like, are you divergent friend? And then they have to cut to as this guy's standing there, like in a full suit, they have to cut to the feet and show that he's wearing these like bunny slippers. I know. Right. Because it's and, like, and it looks like he's wearing jellies. Right. But it's, but it's just, it's just all, I these think Bruce Willis wacky, is wearing jellies. I know all these wacky ways for them to take these scenes, even the characters that seem lucid and self-aware, you know, it's, 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 stretched well, to this demented level. You reminded level. me too when you were talking about his last name and his last name being Cole and everything. Uh, that was another thing that reminded me of The Sixth Sense because right. Cole is the Haley character. Joel Osment. Yes. And I'm like, oh, Sixth Sense and Cole. And and you want to know another I thing? I can't help it. It's like I'm, my brain, the kind of brain I have, and that's part of the reason I'm so into history and stuff, it's like I'm always trying to piece together pieces Connected. of a puzzle. And I always want to find out how this story connects with that story somehow in some way well maybe distantly maybe hundreds of years before hundreds of years after but at some point they intersect Mm -hmm. every story kind of does yes do you know what i mean so it's like that's kind of how my brain gets wired i see a certain actor or whatever and i'm like i'm thinking about other things they've been in Mm -hmm. or oh that name or whatever the case well it's funny you say the thing about sixth sense and cole because yeah his character's name is james cole and Haley joel osmond's character's name cole in the sixth sense Mm -hmm. there's a line in this movie i don't know if you remember when 
they get attacked in that theater when they go into the theater where all the homeless guys mm-hmm. are and Bruce Willis beats mm-hmm. the guy to death yeah, yeah, and yeah. Madeline Stowe is like, oh my God, you killed him. And he's like, all I see are dead people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I you do know? remember that, yeah. And it's like, we're not the first people to notice that, but that's one of those. No, wait a minute. Things. Sixth Sense was the same year, wasn't it? No, Sixth 98, Sense was 98. 98. Like three, so three two years, years after. Later. Yeah. Well, this said 96 or something. Yeah, yeah, so two years Maybe 95, 96. Okay. But, um, and then Fight Club was 99, right? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, all within the same decade, but a couple years apart. Um, and just Die Hard was 89, the original. 87, I think. Oh, really? Okay. Was it 87 or 89? I can't remember now. I think it might have been 87. Um, but yeah, just just real quick, just other things about the Brad Pitt performance. Like, he's got this great, he's got a couple of really great monologues where he, at one point where he's he's showing Bruce Willis's character around the insane asylum and he's he, he sees the TV and he's doing this whole thing like, there there it is, it's all right there. Look, listen, Neil, pray. Doctor anymore, at least to make things anymore, it's all automated. What are we for then? We're consumers, Jim. Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff, you're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? Mentally ill. And he's giving him this whole crazy, very, uh, very Tyler Durden-esque diatribe about mm-hmm. consumerism. Mm-hmm. Um, later... He does a great speech. The scene where you're talking about where he's crawling over all of the people that are asleep in the in the ward. The other patients. He's um, he's doing this whole thing about germs, and he's saying, you know, the whole majority rules aspect of right. insanity. He's like, at one point, there's this doctor who says that there's these little invisible germs, mm-hmm. and they get you sick, and mm-hmm. you need to wash your hands. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks he's crazy. Cut to now. Some guy is making my hamburger at a, at a fast food place and he drops it on the floor. He picks it up. He wipes it off. He hands it to me like it's all okay. I say, well, what about the germs? He says, I don't believe in germs. Germs are something that they use to, to sell you disinfectant products. Who's crazy now? He's crazy. He's like going right. into this whole... It's mm-hmm. All of his dialogue is... He's he's delivering at such rapid fire pace that it's almost easy to, to miss how really well written some of those monologues that he has are. Um, but they're, they're just a ton of fun and he's fucking going bananas the whole time. So that's really fun to watch. Um, the production design in the movie, there's these great set pieces, the way that the future is. There's that one thing I, I even the I remember post-apocalyptic. World. Yeah. And that all that stuff looks great. All the like underground stuff where there was one scene where she's buying something in a department store and it kind of like intercuts with how it looks when it's abandoned and then it cuts back to. Yeah. It's like this old yeah, historic well, building in the, New York. It's or the something. it's the opening scene. It's in Philadelphia. It's the opening scene when, when he goes into um when he's sent up he's a prisoner mm-hmm. and he's quote unquote volunteered to go and collect specimens for these scientists. Mm-hmm. So they send him up there and he's in like these this ruined building where you see all the animals now are inhabiting the earth because the human beings are not on the earth. But that same building But also unbeknownst to him because the whole ultimate mission of the 12 monkeys was to just let a whole bunch of animals free. It wasn't even to right. fucking unleash this drug right. or drug testing Right, it was, it's like virus. misdirection, yeah. yeah. But that scene that you're talking about in the, the, in the department store, when he when he looks up and that cuts away, it's him realizing that he's in the same building that he was in at the beginning of the movie. And he looks up and he realizes, oh, this is the same building and what it looked like then in the future in 2035. Mm. Um, I love, there's that weird kind of globe that's got all the cameras on it. Yeah. You know, when they when when they've got him in the chair and they're right. interviewing him and it's like you've got all like it's the just doctor's like face the is one all eye distorted. of the doctor. Yeah, that's all or the female doctor, her eyebrows are all like yeah. crazy in the corners. Yeah, yeah. I, I see that's the stuff that like I think is visually the, right. it's just so cool looking. It's such a it's such a Terry Gilliam trademark. It's exactly what you'd expect him to bring to the production design and mm. how it's gonna look. Um I also wrote down I like that the time machine it's very simple, but it resembles an MRI kind of. The, it does. And like there's a cat that, scan. And there's that one scene in the movie when he's trying to escape. Can the I help institution. you? Can I help you? The doctor keeps asking, can I help and you? And he's looking at like he's all high and he's looking at the MRI that, that, that he's giving to the other guy. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like it's reminding him, it's making him remember, oh shit, like I, that's, it's like a callback to what the time machine looked like that he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the, all the production design and I mean, all of that stuff is just like top notch, first rate. Really, really interesting and really cool. All right, you want to take a quick break? We'll come back with some more highs and lows. All right. right. See you on the flip side. (laughs) Don't monkey around. I don't really come from outer space. Oh, L.J. Washington, he doesn't really come from outer space. Don't mock me, my friend. (laughs) 
<laughs> Get out of my chair! Coming back from break, you you have a you have an interesting high. You I wanna... missed you guys. I'm glad we're back. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about one of your random highs that you had? It wasn't really even a high. Well, you weren't sure if it was a high. Every or now low. and then we do these movie high lows, and I write one that's on the line because I'm not sure how I feel about it. Okay. And I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about the Bruce Willis repeated ass washings that take place in the first half hour of this movie. I'm not sure why. They, like, they're decontaminating. Fucking them. hosing them down, scrub yeah. brushes, just like they are, they're, they're spread eagle. Like, what's happening? Like, okay, why do I need to keep seeing Bruce Willis's ass getting scrubbed? I mean, yeah. I. <laughs> That's yeah. I think um, I would. My, my my guess would like be. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's something to be acknowledged for sure. It's it, it didn't want to go unnoticed because it, it was calling attention to itself for sure. That's what I'm saying. I think that these guys were probably like or Bruce Willis or you know or even in the scene with Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt in butt, the shot at one and not long too. after he's crawling over the other patients when they're sleeping. It's like. The the doctors come in with the flashlights and everything, and now he pulls down his bridge. He's like, oh, "What does he say in that line?" I can't remember what, uh, what yeah, he's I know, saying. I he's screaming whenever he's screaming. Yeah, yeah. When he's doing when he's when he's showing his ass though, and he's going nuts in the. Yeah. So I think so. I have I have two theories on this. I think theory number one is that these guys were probably in, in in great shape and probably contractually fought to say like, "Hey, I'm in great shape. My ass needs to have a featured cameo <laughs> at some point in 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 this movie." Bruce Willis got two featured cameos for his ass in the movie. That's because he was the higher build actor at the time. So that makes sense. The other thing I'll say, and this is actually something I really think people should go back and watch 90s films and, re- and really pay attention to this. I think in the 90s, seeing someone's ass was considered <laughs> funny. Back then, that was like a funny thing, like pressing ham. Or, I'm not you trying know, to be the butt of the joke. You know what I'm saying? But like, I feel like, I feel like, remember when it was like socially acceptable to moon someone? Not socially right. acceptable, but it was considered funny. That was something. You show your ass to somebody it's like now. It's a wedgie. Like, dude, you're, go, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. <laughs> Back then it was like, ah, well, his ass. In the wake of the Me Too movement. Yes, yeah, certainly. There's the, the there's no you can't room for shake it. hands without being misinterpreted. <laughs> can't I mean. shake hands now in general with COVID-19. I know, I know, right? but especially you're not, you're not letting out any, uh ass germs to say the least on your on your ass neck oh <laughs> salty clams on my ass neck in the drink <laughs> tie me down on the beach and rub sand all over my ass neck and and beat me with like all little sharp things that they found on the beach and they would try to drown me and tie me to the piers for high tide um so so okay so we haven't talked we haven't talked at all about madeline stowe you bitch <laughs> We haven't talked. We haven't talked at all about Madeline Stowe, who is a big part of this film. Really, really great in it. Um, she plays Doctor Catherine Rayleigh, who is the psychiatrist. Who eventually, what we end up realizing is she is the woman that is in the flashbacks um, of Bruce Willis when he's seeing himself being killed. She's mm-hmm. the woman that's trying to stop him from being shot mm-hmm. in those flashbacks. Um, the same one with blonde hair. Yes, exactly. And that's like a whole thing where. You, you, you're waiting for it to see like why is her hair going to be different or what's happening and you realize later that they're trying to disguise themselves to be able to fly which again this movie's fascinating in that regard that you know uh, uh, flying pre 9-11 anytime you see mm-hmm. flying pre 9-11 in a movie you're like wow they don't have to show an ID I like the scene where she's fighting with the other like TSA agent yeah. whatever it's like <laughs> I be, don't have to help you with anything. Like yeah. fucking just like yeah, you'd be grounded for life. You would never get on an airplane again pulling that shit mm-hmm. these days. Um, but what I th- what I thought was really interesting about the Bruce Willis Madeline Stowe relationship or the characters in this is the complete role reversal that happens with them, right? So the beginning of the movie, Bruce Willis shows up and he is he is very vigilant in trying to uh, you know his belief in his mission, trying to explain to them. And his insistence on the fact that I am from the future. I am here to collect information um, that that I'm going to give to scientists because five billion of us are going to die from a virus. And I'm here to collect that information so that we can go back and develop a cure. And, you know, everyone else thinks he's crazy. And Madeline Stowe thinks he's crazy, but is is kind of willing to hear him out. And she has this weird feeling about him. She's like, I know you from somewhere. I, I, I feel like I know you. Which I think you know is, is tied to the cosmic loop of what's happening with of them. Of course, clearly. Um, you know that that like Have weird, you somewhere? right? Yeah. That weird memory or that weird uh, foresight of what's to come at some point in the story. The thing that's interesting about their characters is she so clearly does not believe him or, or thinks him to be mentally divergent. Is that you've created a fantasy world in your head where you are a hero and you are trying to um, to accomplish this task because you don't want to deal with the reality of your life and he's so vigilant in 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 his goal 
But after a while, as things get worse and worse and worse throughout the story, like he goes from, he's originally sent back to 1990 and then gets pulled back to his original time and then gets sent back to World War One by accident and then right. shows up in 96. Well, that scene was funny because like, we're going to send you smack dab to 1990 or whatever. And it's like, whoops. What is this, World War One? Like, yeah. right in the middle of war? Like, yeah. Right on the field of battle. Which is that great line, the whole exact science isn't an exact science with these clowns. I'm surprised he wasn't sent back to the Battle of Hastings he, in 1066. He could have the Conqueror and all and the, and the fact that the, even like that the technology is so kind of <laughs> shaky, you know, that, that they're, they've got this technology to do time travel, but it's not quite dialed in yet because they're living in the center of the earth and, you know, technology is not expanded the way it would in a society that is thriving as opposed to a society where 99% of the people are dead mm-hmm. and they're just trying to figure out what the fuck happened. But his goal, again, is to try and help piece together the the start of the virus so that they can track the path of it and understand what happened and then try to develop a cure for it. Um, and what happens with Madeline Stowe's character is he, he uh, Cole, Bruce Willis's character, continues to provide information to her or, or do things that she is not able to explain away you know so he's there's this whole thing that's happening the boy in the well yeah there's the whole thing that's happening on the news where there's this little boy who's who's fallen into a well and it's this ongoing news My story that they keep hearing me never to cry wolf yeah and he remembers that from when he was a kid because mm-hmm. it was happening he would have been a kid at that time that it was mm-hmm. happening that was the first time i was ever really scared right for somebody well that's where this movie almost starts to feel like big a little bit i'm like so when he meets her like is he kind of a kid still technically no like no, when he meets her, when, the timeline that he's in, he ex, he's in a timeline where there's an eight-year-old version of him that exists. So, so it's simultaneously. It's sim- which is why he sees himself die. He yeah. happens to be in the exact same place at the exact same time that his present version of himself was in. Mm-hmm. And that's what causes that kind of cosmic loop that's happening with him, him seeing himself murdered. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so there's so there's the whole thing with the with the little kid in the well that he that he knows the ending to that story before it even happens. How could he possibly know that this little kid was hiding in a barn and it was a hoax the whole time? Unless you know, unless he was really from the future. Um, he gets shot in that World War One scene where you know she mm-hmm. she ends up pulling the bullet yeah. out of his leg, and then the the cops, the detectives who are working on her case after she's been kidnapped. Are saying, hey, we we checked the uh, the ballistics on this, mm-hmm. and this this round would have been fired sometime before 1920. So what the fuck is this all about? Well, even the scene where she's taking the bullet from the wound, you can see that she's looking at it in the gauze. She's examining it, and you can tell she's even looking at it, kind of like this looks a little strange. Yeah, the the bullet. She itself. She doesn't say anything, but you can see she's examining it and kind of looks at it a little bit. Like what is this? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So the role reversal becomes that after. You know, he he ends up um, because he meets Brad Pitt's character, because he meets Jeffrey Goins character and is under the influence of all the drugs that he's all the medication that he's on while he's at the institution. He makes a comment where they're they're watching footage of animals being experimented on. And he's going, wow, we're, we're, we're asking for it. We're just asking for it. You know, we, maybe the human race does deserve to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. And Brad Pitt's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's a great idea. So that when he interacts with him six years later, Brad Pitt's telling him like, hey, it's your idea, right? Your idea about killing the human race. Right. So he thinks like, oh my right. God, I put the idea in, your head. in his head yeah, yeah. and this is what started the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Now he's like, oh my God, is this my fault? Right. That I was sent back and I said the wrong thing to the wrong person right. and set this whole series of events in motion, mm-hmm. um, which is a really cool little twist halfway through the movie of it's the John Connor thing, you know what I mean? Where it's like, Kyle Reese is sent back to save John Connor, you know, but John Con- John Connor is never created unless Kyle Reese goes back in time and has sex with Sarah Connor. Like, so is he the thing that starts the chain of events that becomes the plague? What that came kills, first, the chicken or the egg? You know, and it's this, and that's that's kind of a, a a time travel trope to a certain degree, but it's it's well done here. It's it's kind of a cool thing that you can think. Oh no, well, he's I personally find it. it quite shallow and pedantic. <laughs> shallow and pedantic. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so he, so he ends up back with Madeline Stowe and ends up disappearing and she can't explain how he just disappears from this like little creek that they're, that they're standing in. Um, she can't explain how he just disappeared from the woods, just like she can't explain how he disappeared from 
being completely restrained in a mental institution six years earlier and how he has this information and how he's got this bullet in his leg from, you know, 1917. So when he comes back... I still want to watch that movie. Yeah, we should. We should. We got to check that out. Uh, when he comes back later in the film, he is now convinced that everything that he's seeing is a hallucination or, or a delusion, is that even the people, the the scientists that he's dealing with in, in his quote-unquote present are actually made up things in his head that are that he's creating himself to not deal with his reality. So when he comes back later in the movie, he's like, oh no, I'm insane and I want to get well and is almost like trying to turn himself into the police where she's like, no, 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 no. Everything you said has to have been true. And it's just this complete role reversal of him right, wanting to turn right. himself into the of cops course. and her being because like... Because over time she realizes through exposure that, wow, this came true and that came true. He's right or he wasn't. he was right about this and he was right about that. Yeah. And then and then exactly. And then by the end by the time she feels like, oh wow, he was right about everything, he's like, No, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. crazy. I realize it, and you know, and exactly. And that's a cool uh, that's a cool thing within the context of the story to keep it a little bit off balance for you know, I, I think I think watching it, you know that the movie's gonna continue forward as if, you know, everything that we've seen, it's not gonna be a big rug pull at the end that, oh no, this was all in Bruce Willis's head. But it's an interesting turn in the story to make those characters switch motivations for, for all of a sudden him to be like, I think I'm crazy and I want to turn myself in. Mm-hmm. And for her to be like, no, 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 everything you've said makes sense. And even though I'm the logical doctor, like beat the shit out of that guy. Let's take his cash. Like we got to get the fuck out of here. Like she's, she's totally right. Well, she's in thinking it to more survivalistically than right. she was in the beginning where right. he was thinking more survivalistically. That scene I wrote down was really funny. I wrote down the tooth extraction scene, which I think is just so fun. So they, they some crazy cro- coked out lady and some crazy dentist. Fucked up dentist. Yeah. Um, they, um, they talk about how, so there's, this is another thing I wrote down to this guy. I thought was awesome. The, the crazy voice guy, the guy who, Bruce Willis is hearing throughout the movie and you're not sure like is this the homeless guy is this a guy that's in his head is this just a voice that he's hearing because he's hearing it at all different places Mm -hmm. he's not just hearing it when he's when he's in that um cell yeah when he's when he's even back in 2035 he's hearing that guy kind of taunting him Mm -hmm. so you're like is this guy real is he not real is it a voice in his head is it something imagined and they do a really cool job with this character pull my teeth out why would I do something like that yeah, and and then and then he's um when Madeline Stowe encounters him later, and, and he's like James. He's like I don't know I don't who know you're talking you're, about. You're, you're, so you're almost you're like what yeah. the fuck is yeah, this guy? I know it's just it's one of those mysteries that it doesn't have to have an answer. It's just there to kind of uh, present the question to let the audience have to chew on it and figure it out. Like hmm. is he real? Is he imagined? Is he partially real? Is he how much of it is really in Bruce Willis's head versus how much of it really actually right. happened? So that stuff is all really, really fun. The tooth extraction scene, that whole thing is so cool. So they th- that guy, that that um, uh, crazy voice guy, I call him, is um, it, it tells him that the tooth, the teeth is how they track you. So Put the bug in there. Right? You're led to believe that he is They're another guy from the future. You. He's yeah. another guy from the future, and I came back as well. Maybe I was another volunteer, and I cut my teeth out, and that's how... I've been able to stay. I haven't had to go back. And I think there's one point where there's the evangelist guy, like the homeless evangelist guy who's outside the church and he's, he's, you know, doing all his ranting. And as Bruce Willis runs by, yeah, he stops and looks at him. He's like, you're one of us as if to imply maybe these are all people from the future Mm -hmm. who have come back, who people think are crazy, but they're not really crazy. There's people from the future who are trying to escape the horrible, inevitable future. They got that tracking device on you. They can find you anywhere, anytime. It's in the tooth. Right, Bob? And I fooled him, old buddy. (laughs) I was just thinking, too, about the scene where she's talking to the, the cop and it's after the role reversals kind of started to happen or whatever, and she's talking about how, you know, Bruce Willis actually kept her safe and saved her in some way or something. And when they get attacked by the and people he's in the like, theater. what is it? What is it about? You know, you victims of, of getting uh, how did he word it? He's like, he, you you get kidnapped and all this and that, and then next thing you know, you're just 
you're talking about what an upstanding guy they are or yeah the, the he's go he's going maybe because you're a psychologist you can help me understand why is it all right you, why is it that all you, you you know when people are kidnapped the women who get kidnapped are always telling us what great guys the, the people are that kidnap them mm. and she you know it's, it's the um what's it called the um stockholm, stockholm syndrome. syndrome you know but they don't um, say that in the movie. They don't. They don't. But she's. But she's. She says she's like it's a natural reaction, and she's also trying to say like, hey, this guy's sick. He's not a criminal. He's a he's a mentally ill person that needs help. Mm-hmm. That's what she really believes up to that point. And then of course, as time goes on, she starts to really believe in his story mm-hmm. and think that like, oh god, he really is the guy from the future. And then it's got a great. It's just got a great payoff. It's got a great like the way that they bring that that um, the dream memory framing device back and pay it all off and you realize that he is and he is in fact seeing his own death as a child seeing his uh, his death as an adult who's come back through time to, to do this that Madeline Stowe is the woman in the memory um, you don't ever quite see that it's David Morse in his recounting of it but once we get to that point we realize that it's That's David exactly Morse who, it is. who is this guy who is kind of peppered in throughout the movie. Like he shows up at Madeline Stowe's lecture and has and it has kind of like this radical opinion of the Cassandra complex and human nature and mm-hmm. how we're destroying the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, and he has that whole back and forth with her at the book signing portion yeah. of it after. You see, you see that he actually works for Jeffrey Goins, um, Brad Pitt's father, mm-hmm. who Chris, played by Christopher Plummer. He actually works for him for his lab. So the whole misdirection you know, for the characters in the movie and even the audience is that the army of the 12 monkeys is who we believe um, it creates this virus and, and um, you know, essentially sets in motion this plague. And really all it is, is Brad Pitt leading these, as he calls them, ineffectual liberal douchebags uh, to, you know, free a bunch of animals from, he does like these little radical things they talk about at one point, he let out a hundred snakes in a, in a Senate meeting um, they show at the end of the movie that he basically lets out all of these animals from a zoo and then traps his dad, Christopher Plummer, in one of the cages. So the whole time that they're, they've been thinking that the army of the 12 monkeys is actually the cause of this, they're really just kind of a misdirect. They're kind of a red herring as to the fact that there's right. a guy that works in that lab that really has a fucked up agenda to go and kill humanity because of how bad we are to our earth and to the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just one other real thing I thought was kind of cool. Keep you on your toes as the viewer. Yeah. Good. And it was, and it was, you know, it's, the, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool red herring. It's a cool misdirect for the movie. One other thing that I love, and I always just thought, I just remember, I remember seeing this as a kid and always thinking it was creepy. When he first comes back from 1990 and it's like the first time that he's been sent back in time and he comes back and they're playing this message that now exists. Now, since you've gone, we have this new message and it's the reconstructed recording of Madeline Stowe making the phone call, mm-hmm. you know, saying like, it's the army of the 12 monkeys. Have a Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. I can't do anymore. I have to go now. Have a Merry Christmas. You know, and they're like this. We just got this. This just came in. I just I always I always thought that was such a cool I, it just creeped me out. I know, and she's I, so and she's so happy. She's come back. To, I'm like, oh no, it's just it's yeah. just a um, painter or a plumber or it's whatever. A, it's a yeah, it's a, a carpet cleaning service. You know, it's just a carpet cleaning service. And I left him a funny message, and he repeats the message to her verbatim because he has, like, a, he has uh, a he has a um, yeah. he has that kind of photographic memory, memory. photographic memory. And he repeats it verbatim, and he's like, yeah, they got your message. But even just when they first play it in the movie, I just yeah. the effect of like the way that it sounds well, it's reconstructed, sounding, it's just really creepy. I always thought that was awesome. Um, that's all I got. I just, I, in general, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a really cool, uh, post-apocalyptic virus contagion slash time travel movie. It's got all these great elements to it. It's got Terry Gilliam style just all over it. It's super, super fucking fun to watch. You know, it's all these years later and I still think it holds up pretty well. Yeah. Do you got any other highs that I didn't cover or? Um, I think I said them all, but let me double check. Oh, I liked the random Q-tip guy in the scene where the police detective is talking to Madeline Stowe over the phone, and he just pull he walks into the scene and he gives the cops something as he's talking on the phone, and then he just starts digging his ear with the Q-tip <laughs> randomly. I'm like, what? There's actually a couple of random scenes like that in the movie that are that are funny, and then there's like a scene where it's cutting to 
it looks like a cop talking to supposedly one of Madeline Stowe's sisters saying, I haven't seen her since this. And there's like a cat walking over an answering machine or something. I think it's like one of her colleagues or something. I thought she said it was her sister or something. I don't know, maybe. um, And then when there's like a scene where they're finally like Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe are like first starting to like kiss or like, you know, yeah, finally. And there's like the, the homeless guy that's sleeping, or someone's like snoring. Oh no! It's when they're when they're in the movie theater, and the the usher is like asleep. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think it was that. Yeah, exactly. Because she pulls away from the payphone, and he realizes she's got the blonde hair, and it's like, yeah, see, this is what I was dreaming about. And there's a, that scene too, like when you have when a flight to feed you at nine thirty. When mm. she's when she's um when she's getting them to disguises because they're in a movie they're they're in a movie and she's, she's putting the glue putting the, disguise glue the mustache on him. on him he's got this little monologue that that's really interesting that where he's talking about how i remember seeing this movie you know and the movie never changes it was the birds right yeah well the birds i think it was a double feature i'm trying to remember what was it was it, it in vertigo i think it might have been vertigo that they're watching at the because the birds is playing at one point yeah i'd have to go I, i'm pretty sure it's vertigo that they're watching when um when he's, de- but he's, he starts talking about how he's like, I remember seeing this movie as a kid and you know, the movie never changes, but you're different every time you see it. And then you see things that are different in it. It's, it's kind of a meta moment in the movie. It's not particularly profound or anything that hasn't been said or thought of before, mm-hmm. but it's very um, appropriate for the context of the movie where, you know, 12 monkeys is one of those movies that's meant to be watched multiple times. It's meant to be, uh, that you're going to see something different in it the more and more you watch it. There's a lot of layers. So there's uh, so I thought that was kind of cool that they worked that kind of thing into the movie where he's talking about, uh, you know, it's not it's not necessarily the movie's different. It's that you're different every time you come to it. I think I've seen this movie before. Shh. When I was a kid, I saw it on TV. Don't talk. The movie never changes. It can't change, but... Every time you see it, it seems different because you are different. You, you see different things. You know, even now, as an, as an, I haven't watched this movie in quite some time. And, uh, you know, I'm, again, I remember I've always loved this movie. I remember seeing it a bunch as a kid. I remember seeing it obviously a bunch in like my teenage years and my 20s. This was like a mainstay. But I've been away from it for a while. And um, even coming to it now, I, I, I had a couple of new things that I, I thought I ever got from it. In fact, even a couple of my lows that I wanted to bring up. That will happen in life. What are your what are your lows for this movie? I only had one low um and it was probably a bit of a nitpick, but the scene where not long after Bruce Willis holds Madeline Stowe at gunpoint and makes her drive the car and you know, he's channel surfing on the the stations and a commercial comes on. I think it was the commercial for Key West or whatever. No, I heard so this time you're all that. Oh. And it's the commercial for Key West. And she's like trying to explain to him because he's all like, oh, yeah, I've never seen the beach. I've never seen the ocean. And, you know, he's getting all dreamy thinking about Key West. And he thinks she's like, to him directly. it's just an advertisement. <laughs> and he's like, what? An advertisement. And it's like, I just got mad because I'm like, an advertisement <laughs> or a commercial or an ad, short for advertisement, sure. But like, the only excuse that you would have for pronouncing it advertisement is if you were like English or something or foreign, that that would be the natural way you would pronounce it. Like you're clearly American and your your dialect signifies that. So like advertisement, I was just yeah. kind of annoyed. It was That's like, kind of like a stuffy upper crust. Yeah, exactly. Your advertisements. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah. God, shut up. I hate you. <laughs> That's... That's fair enough. Uh, that that one that one. I can't hear you. You yeah. can't hear me. I can't hear you. I can't hear you, or you can't hear me. I mean, what what country are you from? I mean, and that's fine if that's how you naturally would pronounce it. That makes sense. But it's like some people, like you know, they're just intentionally pronouncing it because what you like the way it sounds. You know, advertisement, advertisement. Scenario. You know, scenario, scenario. scenario. Know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know. Pretentious I fuck. I agree. I agree. That's that's a good one. Yeah. Um, that was my only low. <laughs> so I had I had two, and and one of these, one of these has always kind of bothered me, like for the, for the whole time. I think I think it bothered me a little bit more this time around than it than it has in the past. One of these, re- I never really thought of until I saw it this time. That really bothered me. Um, I think the movie relies on quite a few convenient photographs, specifically photographs 
to help with some character revelations, right? So at one point when she is um, figuring out that Bruce Willis, when, when he when she gets the call from the detective who's like, yeah, the ballistics are saying that this thing, this bullet that you gave mm-hmm. to us would have been shot in 1920. She goes through a whole bunch of photos that she has for her book mm-hmm. because she does a whole thing on the Jose character mm-hmm. who's his, you know, they have like the whole thing where like this random guy showed up once and was prophesizing about this thing right. when she's doing the whole thing about the Cassandra complex. I know, I know. She's doing the lecture. And she's going through all of her, all of a sudden she just goes through all of her photos and she has a legit like fucking glossy of Bruce Willis like hanging outside of the, um, out of a the. A stretcher. Yeah, like like Jose's on the stretcher. The and medics he's like, are coming. He's in. like hanging outside of like a foxhole or something and she's got like a clear picture of him. Yeah. As if to confirm. So first of all, the fact that she pulled the bullet out of his leg. Like and who's taking a picture at that moment? You know no, what I'm saying? No, no one is taking that's, a picture it's just, it's such It's such an unnecessary addition. It's one of those things that's stuck in there for like the dumbest possible person to say, you know, oh, okay, do you not get that? Right. Or in case you don't believe me, or, or you if can't, you, can't or if you don't this. remember, like she doesn't have to have a picture of Bruce Willis from He World spoke War perfect I. English. They couldn't tell quite where the dialect came from. That was a little... And then even worse than that, and this this one really bothered me on this watch, was that when when they're at the airport and she happens to bump into David Morse's character, like yeah. she literally bumps into him and recognizes him as the guy from mm-hmm. her lecture. He's, in, he's got the ponytail, he's mm. got the coat, and he's walking by... And in that, like in that exact moment, she bumps into him, looks at him, and then as he's walking away, she looks down at a newspaper. There's like a USA Today, and in the sidebar mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the USA Today, there's a picture. Him. There's a picture of Christopher Plummer and him and Brad Pitt's dad. And she's able to immediately put together like he's he works for right. for Goins' father, and he's the one. And it's like, oh God, really? Do do we? Like that's really fucking convenient that yeah, they just I happen know. to have the sidebar yeah. picture of them right there on the fucking newsstand that you're standing at as you right. been. Like it's just a little Well, even the scene where Bruce Willis is escaping from the mental institution and there's the one security guard that's reading the newspaper and it's like he sees Bruce Willis and you're waiting for it to be like, Oh shit, you've been caught, you're gonna go back and he just looks at him and he says some stupid shit and he basically gets on the elevator, no problem. And I'm just yeah. kinda like that Well, that's convenient that the security guard didn't say shit oh and you were like, Oh, maybe he just thought he was a doctor or something or thought of somebody like he yeah. was wearing a bathrobe and pajamas. <laughs> I mean, he clearly wasn't a doctor. I mean it was it was convenient. Oh, well, good. So now he can get away. I'm happy, but at the same time, it's like yeah, it's a little bit. You're of a expecting stretch. it to be like, hey, wait a minute, guards. You yeah, know, yeah. That one doesn't bother me as much because I just I just look at it like that guy's incompetent. He's not paying attention. But I, I know what you mean. That's he kind looked of right like, at Bruce Willis. It wasn't like out of the corner of his eye. And he wasn't paying attention. It was like he yeah, looked right at him. So yeah, it was like, is he in on it? Yeah, I, I mean, guess that's 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 fair. That's fair. Um, the other one I have, and this is something that I never really thought much of until this viewing of it, really. I mean, uh, this this really kind of bothered me as I was thinking of it. So they established the whole thing with the teeth as the locator, as the honing device, or the tracking device for the people in the future to be able to track who they've sent back and recall them uh, uh, from what I understand, right, is that Bruce Willis disappears several times in this movie. And then reemerges. Where he's recalled back to the future. He's sent back to 1990. He's recalled mm-hmm. back to 2035. He's sent to World War I by accident and then transmitted to 1996 and then recalled back to 2035. That to me, the, more, the more I think about it, the less I like that because even with the tooth thing established as, okay, this is their tracking device on you, it doesn't make any sense that they would be able to physically bring him back from the from the past like the matrix a little bit but you know what i'm saying is that like he has to have a machine they have to put him in that crazy mri machine for for them to transmit him back in time right it's 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 and and again you can go down this path with these time travel movies that that you know you can you can start poking holes and everything but the actual device the actual thing that travels you from time right if he had a fucking delorean i would get it he traveled with the delorean the delorean's with him he got back in the delorean and went back in time for him to go through this machine and literally just be standing in water and they can just zap him back it almost doesn't it doesn't make any sense it would be like 
there would have to be a machine. I just kept thinking of the Matrix all that shit, so I didn't think too much about it. But like, because like the Matrix, but you know what is I'm like, saying? Oh, 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 like. But even the- in the Matrix, they have to have they have to have that telephone. That's the whole thing. Get me an exit. Right. Get me an exit. They have to. They have to get to a telephone. It's like at any time they can just take him out of it. The, the, well, the, because here's the thing. Explain to me how you put him. You take him in 2035. You put him in this MRI machine and you zap him back into accidentally into World War One. Now he's in World War One. How do you transmit him from 1917 to two? Uh, sorry, from 1917 to 1996 without a machine? You can just because then at that point, why does he ever have to get in that machine again? If it's just something in his teeth, can't you just be like, boom, now you're here. Now you're there. Now you're in 1945. Now you're in 1922. If it's just in his teeth, there's not an actual machine he has to go through. It, it negates the whole point of having a fucking time machine. Yeah. Like the rules are, if you don't have a time machine, that's always one of the big problems in time travel movies is that if they don't have the machine, they can't get back. I got I, I went from 2035 to 1990 and I don't have a right, machine right. so I'm stuck here I right. can't get back so that one bothered me I, it's not something that ever really bothered me in the past but watching it this time I'm like that's kind of a real cheat to just be able to zap him around wherever the plot needs him to be without him having the machine yeah I guess so yeah no you're right is that too much of a nitpick no because I guess it's not really always clear how what's he's the able portal to- what's the way that he gets there other than it's in his teeth Maybe it's through that like Jose guy or something. Somehow he's the link. Yeah, but the Jose guy only shows up at the end. Well, he's in the insane asylum at one point. I thought they yeah he's in the insane. Well, he's in nineteen seventeen. No, is he in the insane? I thought he was because he was saying at one point he's like yeah I, he was. That's how he knew him when he saw him in in nineteen seventeen. Like Jose, oh well, no, he, that wasn't in the asylum. That was in nineteen seventeen. He wasn't in the. But asylum. when he saw him in nineteen seventeen in that in that World War One battle, he he said. Like yeah, and I saw that Jose guy who I remember from the the asylum. He was saying like not the asylum from when he's from at the beginning of the movie when he's when he's in his cage in twenty thirty five. He's a right. prisoner oh, right, right, underground, right. right? And he wakes up and they go, "Oh, you've been volunteered." Right. And he's like, "Oh, I'm not coming back." And he's like, "You don't know that. You might come back. We don't know what happens to people on the seventh floor." But he's not in the asylum. I don't okay, think. Okay, so that's what he meant then. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm I'm just saying that the fact that there's not a physical device or machine that can transmit him i understand the idea of the honing device or the tracking device or like the it's in the teeth mm-hmm. but i would then think that if that's if that's how, how is gonna, he able to move around how is he able to move to from year to year yeah if it's just something that's the teeth and if that's the case why does he ever have to get in that time machine again no i know you pick up a fair point so that's that's again this is not this is the type of stuff that it once, can't be nitpicky if we can't debunk it and it's also one of those things where, like, again, these are things that they're not prevalent enough to fuck the movie up. The movie is, you're going with the story because you're enjoying the story so much that these things don't completely derail it. But that's one of those things that just watching it this time for some reason really got under my skin. I'm like, ah, I don't buy that they can just zap him back. That doesn't make any sense. But yeah, that was... uh Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Dope movie. They actually made a television series uh, that was on sci-fi. It ran for four seasons. I never saw any of it. I remember hearing that the first season was kind of shitty, but that it actually picked up a lot of steam and got really good. So you should watch it sometime. Yeah, it might be, might be a fun one to watch. All right, so let's do the coin toss for next week. Uh, encourage everyone, please hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or hit us over at uh, moviehilo at gmail.com. Send us all-time great movies, all-time worst movies. Tell us why they're great or why they're bad. And uh, we would love to read your recommendations on air. Uh, Let's see what we're doing this week. And it is heads. Uh, Do you want to tell the people what we're going to be doing next week? Next week, we're doing the cinematic masterpiece of James Cameron, better known as Titanic. Terminator 2. Oh, what was that? (laughs) Titanic. Well, it's Cenitit. Yes, Cenitit. That's if you if you spell Titanic backwards, it's Cenitit. 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 I used to suck dick for coke. I seen him. Which is appropriate as April fifteenth will mark the one hundred. <laughs> will mark the one hundred and eighth anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it sank in nineteen twelve. Oh. Nineteen twelve. Yeah, you're right. You're right. In 1922, it'll be 108. 110 in 1922. So it's 108. <laughs> yes, we'll, cut, we'll, we'll cut all this up unless I want to. 
the hundred. Two thousand twelve would have been a hundred years. Yeah. Right? So the hundred and eight year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. So this yeah, will be appropriate as we'll be releasing it around the same yeah. date. Yeah. I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Yeah, I love that movie. Is that what we're gonna do next week? Yeah. Oh my god, this is going to be a long episode. This is going to be like a double episode. You're going to talk through most of it. I'm going to make fun so? of it through most of it, but you'll be you'll probably That's be. That's not true. There's things you liked about it. There are things I like about it. There's more things I like to make fun of about it, but You like Billy Zane and you like the Billy band. Zane's uh, And I'm you like say, the band. I'm going to say it right now, Billy uh, this is I'm already giving away my my top high for the movie for next week, but Billy Zane is the <laughs> best part of that movie. <laughs> He's fucking I put the coat on, huh? I put the diamond in the coat. I'm with the God of Arya. Um, awesome. What could possibly be funny? All right. Well, this will uh, now we get to. Uh, you know what? If there's ever a time to sit down and rewatch a three hour movie, it's when you're locked in your house with nothing else to do anyway. So, mm. sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for tuning into this episode of Movie High Low. And please, please, please do send us your suggestions for highs and lows because it makes it a lot more fun. It makes it a lot more fun. We'll see you guys next week. Are they mutants? We live underground! The world belongs to the dogs and cats! We live like worms! We just need the information! You are total nutcase! Completely deranged! Delusional! Paranoid! Your process is all fucked up! Your information trade is jammed, man! Get out of my chair!